Beyond all the cameras and screens, viral videos and hashtags, God is at work behind the scenes. Benjamin Franklin said, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. Whether we realize it or not, even today, if you look closely, you'll find evidences of history in the making. From our studio on Capitol Hill, I'm your host, Joe Kirby, with Andrew Feinstein. We're excited today to have Sheriff Chris Brown in studio with us for History in the Making. Hey, we are excited to have Sheriff Chris Brown here with us. Uh, full disclosure, Chris and I have been friends for, good friends, for many years. And so uh, I knew him back when he was on patrol. And now he's a sheriff, and we'll talk more about that. Uh, but Chris, why don't you... Uh, tell us where you're from, uh, where you're born and raised, where you're at right now. All right. Well, first, let me say thank you. It's it's great to be here, and it's it's good to be here with Andrew and Joe, and it's great to see you again. And I appreciate y'all uh, having me on and and uh, taking the time. I know this is kind of a fun fun way to get to sit down and, and get to know each other and and mm-hmm. and kind of learn about about some things. And so I appreciate that the opportunity. Um, so I was I was born and raised in in a small gold mining community in Northern California. It's called Grass Valley. And uh, I, I, I would live not in, have guessed California based on the accent. So I was I was <laughs> sure it was a southern state. So it's it's like being a chameleon. You you have to you have to learn the local language to fit in. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so so I live in Arkansas now, and and usually the, the the first response is from California. Well, how did you wind up in Arkansas? Yeah. And uh, so so the 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 story of Chris, if, if to put it that way, is is I played baseball from the time I was really big enough to hold a ball. And played all the way up through high school, got a college scholarship, and played a couple of years in California uh, college, and and then and then came to Kansas and and finished out my my last couple of years playing baseball in Kansas. Uh, met my wife there, went to work for a, a small sheriff's office, and then a, and then a bigger police department. And, uh, and then when we started having kids, we said, "Hey, we want to live near family." And uh, my my wife said. Well, look, I don't care which family we live near because uh, we, we love them both, and uh, you know they're, they're both great, so you can pick. And I said, well, I love my family to death, but I don't want to live in California anymore uh, or ever again, so uh, Arkansas it is. And uh, so we started looking for, for jobs down there, and I'll tell you, you know, um, it is amazing when you— when you obey the will of God, how how fast sometimes doors open, and sometimes yeah. He waits a long time to open doors, but but sometimes when when the timing is right, boy, doors just open fast. And so, um, I uh, uh, right before Christmas, I started calling some agencies right around where we live now, saying, "Hey, do you have any openings? I'm I'm, I'm looking for a job." And called one agency, no openings. Called another agency, no openings. Another agency, no openings. And then I called uh, Cleburne County, and uh, they said, "Hey, we have one opening." And if you'll fill out whatever application it is that you have where you are and send it to us, then then we'll give you a call back. So I did that. That was early December of 2010. Mm-hmm. And they called me right back and said, okay, hey, we're going to mail you uh, this background packet. Fill that out and get it back to us as quick as you can. And so I did that. I came down for an interview uh, toward the end of December. So I drove about the 10-hour drive or so down, did an interview and a ride along, accepted a job, and I moved. we moved two weeks later. So from from the time that we started looking for a job to the time we moved was l- less than a month. Wow! And I mean, it was just I mean, just amazing to see see God open doors just that quick. Yeah, I remember um, that. And it, it was it was amazing how fast it was. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed working where where I was in Kansas, but you know, when you're trying to raise a family, eighty plus hours a week is is a lot. You know, and and uh, especially when you live forty minutes away from where you work. Um, and so God knew that that we needed that we needed to live near a uh, near family and, and needed to have a job where it didn't maybe didn't work quite as many hours and uh, it was just just wonderful and we we love Arkansas love living in Arkansas but um, kind of an interesting journey to get there right yeah that's neat and um, so you come to Cleburne County Sheriff's Department mm-hmm and you're just a normal patrol officer, deputy sheriff, right? Right. So, so actually, during the interview, uh, the 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 sheriff at the time, we're sitting and doing an interview, and he looks at me and says, "How'd you like to be a detective?" And I thought it was more of a joke, and I said, "No, no, no. Like, I I, I push a car. I like pushing a car. I, I, that's what I want to do." And he said, "Well, okay, fine." So I worked patrol for six months, and then he called me on the phone one day, and he said, "You're going into investigations," and I said. Sheriff, I like pushing a car. I want to keep pushing a car. And he said, 
I didn't ask if you wanted to go into investigations. I said, you are going into investigations. So I said, well, Sheriff, I'll do what you want. You tell me where you want me, um, and, and I'll be happy where you tell me to be. And uh, so patrol for six months, and then uh, we call it CID, Criminal Investigations Division. Worked that for two years before before moving on from there. Yeah. And so you went to another department. Fast forward a little bit. And so you work in another department nearby, a police department. And then all of a sudden you decide to run for sheriff. And so take us a little bit through that. I mean, you love being a, uh, uh, you know, a cop, a deputy sheriff, uh, you know, and that background that's obvious here from just even you talking about it, but being an elected official, even a law enforcement official, but being elected is very different than just working as one. So what was, you know, what made you want to do that? So, and, and you're right, you hit the nail on the head. It is completely different. Um, you know, where, where, uh, where I worked after I left Cleburne County was a, was a, a, a city um, and it was, it was very close. It was in a neighboring county and absolutely loved working there. Um, it, out, of, out of all the law enforcement agencies I've worked for, that was probably my favorite. Um, and so me, me and another guy, uh, we were the fire, two of the firearms instructors. We ran the SWAT team and, and we, we pushed cars um, and we just, we loved it. I mean, it was just a great place to work. Uh, the community was very supportive. I mean, I've never seen a community that supports their police department like that place does. Wow. It's just unbelievable. Um, you can just you can just tell. I mean, just the the love between the department and the community, both directions, is just un, uh, unparalleled. And um, so so really, the, the story of of kind of how I came to run for sheriff is you have to back up a couple of years. So we moved here at the beginning of 2011. Uh, 2012 would have been the next election. And, um, you know, I hadn't even lived here two full years yet. And I had about 10 or 15 people call me and say, you need to think about running for sheriff. And, and I laughed at them. I mean, I, I couldn't tell if it was a joke, but I thought it was funny. So I laughed at them and said, no, hey, you know, that's a crazy idea. Look, I'm not, you know, that, no, that's just crazy. And uh, so, so the, the terms at that point were two years. And so two years goes by. And um, th- so... Uh, I get like 20 or 30 calls. You think about running for sheriff? Like, look, guys, you tried this two years ago. Didn't work then. It's not going to work now. Don't call me again. You know, this is not not, not what I want to do. I, I love pushing a car. I love doing the work. I don't want to be the boss. Don't care about being the boss. And uh, so fast forward two more years. Now I'm working at Searcy. And uh, my wife comes to me at, at one point and says, I've been doing a lot of praying, and I don't know if you have, but I really feel like God wants you to run for sheriff. I said, no, no, he doesn't. And, but, you know, the more more I thought about it, I thought, you know, we, we really need to spend some time praying about this because this is the, the third election cycle in a row that that I've had unsolicited um, promptings to, to run. So uh, we, we started praying about it. We started um, asking some people some questions, started making some phone calls, and, and I called, um, called a, a good family friend of ours who is in state government now in Arkansas. Uh, he's a state elected official. And I said, uh, brother, t- tell me a little bit about this. Let's let's hypothetically say that a person were thinking about running for sheriff. Walk me through kind of the process. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so he did, and kind of told me, you know, well, look, this is how much money you can expect to raise and spend. This is uh, these are the kind of events you can expect to go to, and and uh, you know these are the kind of platforms you need to need to have prepared in your mind, whatever those may be. And, uh, but I, I could tell he was just really excited through the phone, even though, you know, this is a completely hypothetical conversation mm-hmm. and, you know, so he was so reading between the lines. <laughs> he, he was, I mean, he could, he could tell it was weighing on me pretty good. And I hung the phone up and, and we, we prayed about it some more and, and it, it, it all, again, it, it seems like, um, God opens doors in, in my life fast. And, and I don't think it's because he wants to work fast. I think it's because I, I'm like Jonah and I just put it off so long that by the time I finally come around, it's time, you know. <laughs> so, um, so we had a, just about a five-day window there, and uh, of course, we we had prayed about it and talked about it, you know, both of the the previous election cycles, right? Um, but just really seriously started praying about it just four or five days um, before that. Our Republican committee meeting was that next week, and uh, we we went there and 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 they said, hey, look, you know, this is the meeting where anybody who's going to run for office stands up and announces what office they're going to run for. And uh, so I'm kind of looking around, and three of us stood up and said, we're running for sheriff on the Republican ticket. And, um, you know, that was, that was kind of the, this big leap out for us because we had no idea. Like I said, I was really happy work, working where I was. 
I, I, I had didn't really then and still don't really have any desire to be the boss. I don't care about a, about a title or, or being in charge of anything. That's um, kind of secondary to me, you know. That's not. It's it's a foreign language to me, I guess, is what I'm saying. And um, but we knew that God wanted us to run, and we said, look, we we don't know what the purpose is here. We don't know exactly what you, what you want, but we know you want us to run. And so we'll be faithful to that and just step out and, and do it. And now, it, before you go any further, let me stop you, uh, and we'll continue on with the story here. But had you had really any experience in public office before this? None. Um, you know, the, about the most most experience speaking in front of people or anything like that up to this up to that point was teaching classes. Um, I, I was an instructor for the department, a firearms instructor, and so we taught a lot of classes, but that was that was my experience. I mean, we, we didn't, other than studying candidates that, that we wanted to vote for, we, we weren't really involved in the political world. We, we weren't really involved in, in politics at all or, or, or anything like that. Um, so this was, from, from the bottom up, a complete new world to us stepping into it, and we just... Like I said, we just stepped out on faith. We we didn't know what the purpose was. We just knew that that he wanted us in that arena. Wow. And so you go and you've got a primary three people and it was uh just to fast forward through some of the backstory here, it was a con- very hotly contested <laughs> uh 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 you know, a primary and you won the primary and then won the general uh after that. And so what was the when did you uh what year was it that you started? Uh, the job as a sheriff. So we we started campaigning in 2015. Okay. Uh, late 2015, about October. The election, uh, primary election, was in uh, I think March, if I remember right, March of 16, and then the general was in November of 16, mm-hmm. and then I took office in January of 2017. Okay. So you've been sheriff uh, two years. You just got went through another reelection, right? Yep. So you have another two-year term or four-year term? So, so they changed it during that 2016 election. One of the things on the ballot was was a, a constitutional amendment to change the uh, all of the county elected offices from two years to four years. So, uh, this uh, being reelected this time, we're now starting. So we're almost a year into our first four-year term. So you don't have to. That'll probably be nice. It's that, really nice. Yeah. <laughs> so on uh, here. Well, well, let me jump in. You said something interesting about the office of the sheriff and the power of a sheriff. Yeah. Ex- explain, uh, explain that to, to, to our listeners. Here. Yeah, because sure. I, I didn't know this. Uh, I'm going to jump in here. My brother's a law enforcement officer. He's a deputy sheriff. Of course, you are my good friend. Uh, you're, you've been a deputy sheriff, a police officer, and now a sheriff. And we were talking. I'm not kidding. I was floored. I was completely floored when you told me this, <laughs> and so you got to tell everyone else, and they can be floored with us. So, so law enforcement is part of the executive branch right. of government, and when you are elected sheriff, you are the highest law enforcement or the chief law enforcement officer in the county. Um, but, but the sheriff inside their county actually has more constitutional authority, more authority than the president of the United States. That's incredible. It it, it is, and it what's really neat about it is the way that. That our, our our government was set up were the were the checks and balances from the top to the bottom to make sure that that no one person had too much power, and and by having an elected law enforcement official for a county, it ensures that there is somebody right there local who can, who can stop overreach as an absolute last defense. So that's it's really good to know your sheriff. I mean, I had no idea that that kind of authority and and power really. Uh, was at that so so close to us, and and that's and that's why, it, quite honestly, and it's not because I am one, but but I really think your sheriff's elections are probably one of the most important elections you can actually vote in, um, because that that's the person who's either going to stand with you or against you if, if it if it ever gets to that point. Now, give us an example of maybe an instance that you know of happened. I mean, not that you're endorsing the instance, but that there was a sheriff or maybe a hypothetical. Uh, where a sheriff stepped in and turned the federal government away. So, so I think there's there's probably lots of good examples. I think the the one that comes to mind uh, right off the top of my head, and I don't have all the details. It's been because uh, it's several years old. Uh, I believe it was one of the northern states, um, Ohio, Ohio or Iowa, somewhere maybe in in there, um, 
where whatever they call it, uh, Department of Human Services or, or some, you know something like that, Child Protective Services in some mm-hmm. states, uh, tr- tried to come in and take a bunch of kids from a family, uh, from a, a couple of parents who homeschooled their kids, and, and the state wasn't real friendly on on homeschooling, and and so they they came in and they said, well, look, you're you're not adequately raising your kids, you're, you're neglecting them, all these things, and so we're going to come take them. And um, it, this, this went several times over, and finally the sheriff stepped in and basically just stood on the front doorstep and said, if you take one more step, I'm taking you to jail for this, and, and protected that family from the government. Now, that was a state that was a state enforcement agency, right? There, that was, if I remember correctly, that was a state enforcement agency, yes. But it, so it's not, I mean, it is the federal government, but it's also the state government that your sheriff has the ultimate authority in your county the ultimate law enforcement authority. Absolutely. And so there's a, there's another example, I guess, for, for the federal government back when the Brady Bill was passed uh, where there was a there were a couple of provisions in the Brady Bill uh, that said, uh, of course, the Brady Bill was kind of the, the big assault weapons Yeah, back in the 90s, package back in the it? 90s. Um, there were a couple of provisions in there that, that directed or, or gave authority to local uh, sheriffs and and uh, municipalities to enforce these federal regulations, and then there was a secondary provision in there that said, if sheriffs or local municipalities refused to enforce it, the federal government had the authority to arrest them. And there were five, uh, well, there were a lot lot more than five, but I think there were five sheriffs that were actually named on the lawsuit against the federal government, and the Supreme Court sided with the sheriffs and said, the federal government cannot do this. Wow, because that would. Violate the checks and balances, right. what you're saying. Absolutely. Wow. That's fascinating. And, uh, and I say this as someone that you know, tries to know something about government. No, you know, you, there's a lot to learn. That's good. Well, because I, I had heard different uh, agencies say, you know, we're, we're, not, we're just not going to enforce that. And I thought they were in the wrong or they were doing something kind of shady as a department for not enforcing some law or bill that I had heard about. But I guess they have every right to do that as a as a part of the executive branch. And, and I think, you know, I mean, of course, there, there's always, you know, you kind of have your, your black and white on, on, on each end, and as you move toward the middle, it gets grayer and grayer. Um, but, you know, I mean, police departments, police officers, judges, they, they all, in a way, refuse to enforce things every day. Um, and, and some of that comes under the name of discretion, um, you know, but we have, I've worked in some places where, Judges have said, well, look, you know, if you stop a car for a tag light, I don't care if you find a dead body in the trunk, I'm throwing the case out because I don't think a tag light's a good stop. Um, and that's that's oh. their right as a judge to, to say that. They can say, well, look, I don't want those to come before my court. Um, you know, and departments really aren't a lot different. Some, you know, you get directives from uh, from the chief or the sheriff or, or whoever, you know, the commissioner, whoever it might be that, that's at the top that mm-hmm. says we're not going to enforce this or we are going to enforce this this way. Um, we went through that in Arkansas uh, a couple of years ago. They passed Act 746, which was um, it was an open carry bill, and it was kind of disguised as just r- revising a current law to, to make it sound better, you know, or you know, reword it to make it make it look better. And in reality, what it what it did was make us a constitutional carry state. And uh, for about a period of two years, our our state police, our attorney general, our governor, they all said. Nope, nothing, nothing's changed. Uh, we're not an open carry state. We're not a constitutional carry state, uh, and and you still have to have a permit to carry all that stuff. But the way that the law read, that wasn't right. Hmm. And um, so for for about two years, I kind of I was standing over in this corner going, hey, uh, "Excuse me, you know, hey, look, this is this is wrong. You know, we we are uh, the we, we have laws that that." Uh, prohibit things. We don't have laws that grant things, and so th- this law doesn't prohibit somebody from carrying a gun, open or concealed, which means that we are now constitutional carry. Um, we we don't pass laws to allow people to do things, and since this law does not specifically prohibit us from doing that, that's now legal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it took two about two years for the state to catch up and go. Okay, well, yeah, we recognize that it, that it's legal and and that we can do that. But even even now, there are still places in Arkansas saying. Uh, if, if you walk into my city open carrying a gun, you're going to jail, um, which is there again is right back back to to where you can choose, you know, agency look, heads on choose. The local level. Yeah. Wow, that's neat. Um, well, the so the Second Amendment is a pretty uh, hot 
topic in your state in particular. And something about the, the, the red flag. Uh, talk to us about the red flag, and, and I guess that's why you're actually here in D.C. today, right? Uh, so it's it's uh, part of it. Um, you know, we're, we're here in, in D.C. for the last couple of days really over immigration reform uh, more more than anything else, but uh, – Kind of as a precursor to that, I had been been communicating with our with our state uh, with our U.S. senators and representatives uh, about red flag laws, and so those are something that's kind of been made popular um, after or really pushed after the Parkland shooting down in Florida, and uh, so so basically the idea uh, of a red flag law, and they go by several different names: uh, gun violence restraining order, gun restraining order, um, emergency risk protection order. Uh, I think there's another bill uh, maybe in in the house called tarps or, or something like that. That's mm. kind of along the same lines. And uh, basically what it says is this, um, you think that I'm a danger to myself or to some other people. You know that I have a gun. You report me to the police um, or, or directly to the courts in some States, the, the judge or, or the police say, yeah, we could see that. They sign a thing. They take it to the judge. Judge signs off on it. The first thing that I hear about it is when the police are knocking on my door saying, we have got a restraining order here, and we're coming into your house and taking all your guns. And and then, de- depending on which state and how that law is set up, anywhere from, uh, I think Illinois' law, Illinois, uh, their their law says two weeks, a minimum of two weeks after that's been done, then you can petition the state to have your guns back to, or or to have a court date to to petition to get them back. Um, some some other places are six months. Some some of these restraining orders can be can be extended for up to a year and then wow. renewed permanently after that. And and really, what it does is it flips our entire criminal justice system on its head. It it now places all the burden of proof on on the defendant to say that I am innocent instead of the state saying here's the evidence to say that he's guilty. And uh, it, it it really it violates uh, your first uh, could violate your first, second, fourth, fifth, sixth, and eighth amendment uh, rights. And I think part of where we've kind of gotten sideways on a lot of this is uh, slowly over over several decades, we've kind of been uh, brainwashed to think that our rights are granted by government. Um, you know, that the Constitution was, was a document written by the government to give to the people. Um, and, and if, and if you kind of fall along those, those lines of thinking, then you could say, well, look, if, if the government gave us this right, then the government can take this right away. Well, that's not a right. That's a privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so, you know, trying, trying to get in people's minds back to the constitution was written at, at the end of a, of a bloody revolution, um, where, where we as, as a people, fought a tyrannical government and said, we don't right. want another one of these. Right. Right. So we're going to write a document to tell you what you can and can't do. And, and as part of that, um, our, our founders recognized, uh, wrote down and recognized some rights that were given to us in, or, or that we inherently have from God That's right. and, and said, hey, government that we are now creating, you can't touch these. Um, and And... And the the, fa- the founders were brilliant in how in how they they set this up because they they set up all these things to ensure that a lot of the things that had happened under under British rule couldn't th- theoretically happen under the the new the new form of government. Going back a little bit here, I'm going to play devil's advocate with the red flag laws, and there's a lot of uh, as you mentioned, there's a lot of different laws, kind of with the same idea, some different approaches. Um, but, you know, kind of devil's advocate side here is, you know, I'm sure you got a lot of, you get, have gotten a lot of questions on this. My understanding is you put it on social media and, and uh, people can find it. Uh, by the way, where could they find it? They want to read a letter that you post. So, so the, the, the letters on uh, my, my sheriff Facebook page it is facebook.com slash CB for sheriff, all spelled out, um, and for F-O-R. Okay. And, and, and sheriff's one R, two Fs. I know there's a, <laughs> some, sometimes a lot of confusion over how to spell it, but uh, facebook.com slash CB for sheriff. And I've, I've got it pinned to the top of the page there so you can see it first thing off. And Okay, so uh, you've been this and you've got a you know a lot of traction, differently, a lot of interest throughout times, but uh, uh, throughout your area there in Arkansas and elsewhere, evidently it's gotten much wider than your state. Um, but on the devil's advocate side, I mean, wouldn't, 
you know, if you were if you were the one that you know was a danger, keeping you with being the example, the person that you know, if I'm your coworker, let's say, and I think that you're a danger, um, and you're saying goofy stuff, and I'm going, man, it's something. Chris has been fine, but last two months, I mean, he has just been off. Something's going on with him. Now he's talking some crazy talk. Um, you know, I mean, I'm probably going to have a pretty good idea where you're at if I'm just your coworker. Um, you know, who else is going to know better? Maybe if you got family member, what's wrong with me? Just saying something's off here and maybe I stop something, you know, uh, what's wrong with that? So, so there, there's a couple things actually. So there's, there's nothing that prevents, that would prevent you in that situation from, from calling the police, calling family members, um, and, and trying to work through some of that to, to, to check on that person that you think is, is, is struggling with something. Under current law and everything you're saying. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think you could do that in all 50 states. Uh, Arkansas calls it a welfare check. Uh, you know, some other states call it something maybe a little bit different, but uh, the police or, or um, you know, Arkansas also has, as, as part of our uh, DHS program, uh, uh, adult, you know, help where, where they can send somebody out and check on adults as well as they do kids. So um, there, there are some resources for that. Uh, the, the biggest problem with how this is set up is, is really kind of twofold. One, one, it, it, it damages all, all of the due process. It doesn't preserve the due process that, that, uh, that we're guaranteed or, or afforded uh, by the Constitution. But, but the biggest problem there is that it basically makes the police a pre-crime unit. You know, I mean, th- this is something like that they make sci-fi movies out of, you know, where we arrest people before they do things because we think that they're going to do something. Um, and, it, and it's just not how our country works. It never has. And, and uh, I mean, quite frankly, I, I think, I mean, our founders would be appalled to, to find out that we were even considering something like this um, be, because it, it presumes that you're going to do something. Well, that wrong. almost, you know, saying on that pre-crime, that almost turns you into some kind of like thought police. That's exactly what it is. Because I haven't done anything, but if I thought something, even if it's horrible, I mean, that I should never think that, and you arrest me for a thought in my mind, I mean, that's in, that's some pretty... It's crazy. Crazy stuff. So, I mean, because we've all <clears throat> thought something that is not right. I mean, right. Well, well, so what, what would be the proper way to go about that if I make a call because I mean Andrew does say some crazy things and I've got to make sure that it's my true. family says that's right. that's <laughs> it's true no. so, but if somebody has a concern they, they call the police are the do other people have to call how do we how how what would be the right way to identify something that is a legitimate concern so and and I think that that is where we kind of hit a brick wall um, because because we recognize that 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 this is or what we have to recognize is this is a people problem. This is this is largely a mental health problem, um, and and that we we don't have a lot of the resources available to to dedicate or or to fund um, a, enough mental health resources to really address this properly. Um, we we want to just say uh, we we want to address symptoms if if I could put it that way instead of trying to address uh, the, the root cause, which is which is people, um, you know, Cain killed Abel with a rock. There was a man in, in Illinois that um, had his guns taken as a result of, of one of these laws and uh, shortly thereafter killed his mom with a sword. Um, you know, so, so we're, we're addressing uh, the, the wrong angle, the, the, the wrong part of this. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the Bible says that if, if we have hate in our heart, you know, if, or if we hate somebody that, that in our mind, you know, we, we've, we're guilty of committing murder um, uh, as, as a sin. So it's, it is a heart problem. And, and by trying to say, well, look, this is the fault of the tool. This is the fault of something else. This is the fault of the police not acting. This is the fault of the family not acting. This is the fault. I, we're, we're trying, we're all around the topic, but we don't want to actually discuss the topic. Hmm. Um I, so I don't know that there is one good answer where you could just say this is the solution because I think if it were that easy we probably would have done it already. Right, um, right. But but I think certainly trying to address more of more of the mental health side of uh, of it, uh, trying to in, invest in people and, and resources. I think part of the problem, and this may not be a popular opinion, but I think part of the problem is when we started closing down the long term mental health uh, facilities, and uh, you know like like anything else, a lot of that. Uh, 
maybe not a lot of it. Some of it was abused. Some people that didn't necessarily need to be housed long term were. Um, but th- there are there are people that are so extremely mentally ill that that they shouldn't be walking around. Um, you know, there there are people that are so extremely mentally ill that they shouldn't have access to guns. There are people that are, are so extremely mentally ill that that they are dangerous to themselves or other people. Um, and, and I don't I don't think that that's something you know that's not. Uh, that's not necessarily to say that they've got something that's permanently wrong with them. I mean, you know, you, people come back and, and they can have they can go through things and they could get that way. I mean, and we, and we recognize that. But there again, it is a that is a people problem. It is not mm. a, a tool problem. And, and by simply taking away a tool, we're not we're not addressing what the problem is. Hmm. Let's switch gears here just a little bit. Was there a pivotal moment in your life that really? defined or refined you as a person as an individual I, I don't know that I could I could look back and point to one specific moment in my life um, my, my my dad has always called me his Midas kid um, he, he kind of jokes that that anytime I put my mind to something or anytime that, that I kind of look in the direction of something chips just kind of or you know dominoes just fall into place or, or the the puzzle pieces just fall into place and, and things happen. Um, and, and I don't know, I don't know if he's right or not. I mean, maybe, maybe he is, but I don't know that I could look back to one specific point and say, this is when it was. Um, I have, God has been wonderful to me my, my whole life and, uh, and has blessed me way, way more than I deserve. And, uh, I mean, and you married up. I married way up, buddy. Yeah, you did. Way up. Yeah. That was yeah, a slow one right down the middle. Just <laughs> that's right. Hit that, that, one down, hit that one out of the yeah, park. Yeah, that's right. You're welcome, Chris. You're buying dinner. <laughs> I think if we're being honest, we all married up. Oh, that's so. for sure. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, myself. But uh, I think you're the only one that literally married up, though. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, all right, thanks. Okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a half an inch. She's taller than me now by a half an inch. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I was going to tell you that, man, until the day you die. Oh, my soul. Uh, anyways, um, so let me ask you this here. You're, uh, you know, you're elected official. You are a sheriff, a law enforcement officer. Uh, I think it's safe to say you don't necessarily do a lot of enforcing in the law. Your job, if I'm correct, is more really an administrative job. Is that correct? It It is in a lot of ways, and, and I, I think – so, so there's kind of a, a common misconception, well, that if you've never been in law enforcement before, it's re- it's really ir- irrelevant for the sheriff because it is solely administrative, um, and, and I think that is a a misguided thought. Um, you know, what we do is is a lot administrative, but we at the end of the day are ultimately responsible for how laws are enforced, for how uh, policies and procedures are carried out, making sure that. Um, that our our deputies and officers, agents, whatever you want to call them, um, that they are protecting people's civil rights and not violating them. Um, you know, police are in, in the very unique position where um, we have we have the authority and the ability to temporarily suspend people's rights um, and, and sometimes permanently. I mean, if we wind up shooting and killing somebody, we have permanently removed some of their rights. Uh, well, probably all of their rights yeah, at that point. Yeah. So, uh, we're, we're in a very unique, unique position. And if if you don't if you don't have a law enforcement background, uh, your learning curve is is tremendous because so much of our job is, is based on the Constitution and, and to to do our job, uh, uh, you know, by the Constitution and and make sure that we're protecting those rights. You'd be really well grounded in that, and that's not something that you learn overnight. Mm. How has your faith really influenced how you do your job? And, and I guess as you entered politics in, 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 in the sheriff position, how does that influence your day-to-day decision-making? I think that it, that it slows my decision-making down, which, which I say in a positive way. Um, maybe in some ways where I would have been a little faster to make a decision, uh, would have been a, a rash decision or something like that. Um, I, I, can, I, can take, I can take just a minute stop and we can pray about it and I can and I can have I've got a good group of people that uh, that is my, my council you know network that that I can I can kind of bounce ideas off of and and um, that that has been been a very positive thing for me um, the probably 
and I'm going to be really careful how I say this. I, I heard somebody say that if you, if you say that you are humble, you have instantly become not humble. And and I, I get I get the sentiment there, but but I think as um, as as we grow as Christians, the the ability to to realize how far down the ladder we actually are, mm. and, and and how unimportant each one of us as a person actually is, and and that there's that we're only here to glorify Him. That that we can we can maybe take a different perspective on on things, and maybe we start to lose some of that ego that uh, that really is is common across the political world, across the, across the law enforcement world, and across so many other different uh, different areas. Um, and, and I think that has been, you know, in in a, in a time where where law enforcement and communities have been so divided and and have just been driven further and further apart, uh, the general uh, response to that is for egos to go higher and, and harder and for you to kind of just dig your heels in. And, um, you know, the Bible says that, that a soft answer turneth away wrath. And, and if we can just kind of lose the ego for a little bit and say, I understand what you're saying. This is where I stand. But let's take a little time. Let, let's, let's see if there's a better way to approach this. Or let, let me see if maybe there's a way that I can explain why I stand where I stand so that, that you understand it or that maybe we can come to a, a middle ground. Or even if we don't agree on it, we can still respect each other and, and walk our different ways. That's awesome. You mentioned something there about the divide between law enforcement and communities. I mean, it's, I mean, there's always some tension there. I mean, there's a part of all of us that don't like to be held to account um, that want to yell at the law enforcement officer, the one time I speed, That's right. you pull me over. I just saw a guy five minutes ago, and That's he right. was going 120. Where were you then? Uh, you that's know, that's right. a part of it, that in all of us. Um, uh, I just like the fact, the one time I speed. The one yeah, time. The one yeah. time. Yeah, the one time. Which is awesome. Yeah. Just that one time. Yeah, but that's what we, I mean, that's that's, what we say to ourselves. Right. In your opinion, from your side of the fence as law enforcement, what is something that our listeners, you know, most of them, of course, are not law enforcement, that they could do to maybe help bridge that divide? So so I think it's a two-way street. So I think there are some things that communities can do, but I think there's some things law enforcement needs to do also. Uh, we, we as a community kind of by necessity are very secretive about a lot of things. Uh, you know, when we're in the middle of investigations, we can't talk about certain things. Um, and so there's a lot of that that we want to or need to or have to protect very closely. And, um, and any time that there's some a society that's very secret, right, I mean, it always breeds distrust. Sure. Um, it just just has that ability because if, uh, if, if, if it's secret and noble, it can't be good or, you know, or something like yeah. that. I remember exactly how the saying went. Um, but, but so that kind of begins to drive the wedge. And... Really, really, how the response is from both ends is kind of what determines if that if that wedge gets driven deeper, or or if you can figure out how to bring the the two communities closer. And so, so I think uh, from from the law enforcement side, we have to work really hard to be more transparent, to be more approachable, um, and certainly not lose that edge. I mean, we are uh, pe- people are killing cops more now than, than they have in, in a really long time. Wow. Um, so, so this job is very inherently, it's inherently very dangerous. And so we, we can't lose that edge, but we also have to understand that a lot of the people that we talk to don't need to see, uh, Mr. Macho or, you know, or whatever you want to call him, um, that, that we can, that we can give respect and, and get respect and, and, and go that route. So I think we need to have that transparency, uh, the, the more of the community outreach and, and trying to be involved in the community, um, and then I think from from the from the community s- standpoint, um, you know, so, something that's huge. Uh, the, the, I mentioned the city that I worked for uh, that that the community and the police department just loved each other. Uh, there wasn't a, a week that went by at, at work when somebody just at random from the community would bring food by the police department. Say we thought about you. We wanted you to to know that we pray for you. We care for you. And here's a Ten pizzas, you know. Here's some cakes that we baked, or something like that. Um, there wasn't a week I went by wow. that, that went by. I don't think that I, we'd go in somewhere to eat and somebody would pay for our meal. We would never find out who it was. Now, when we say that, that's cool. I mean, everyone likes their meal being bought. Who doesn't? But as a police officer, though, upon you individually and upon your department, 
How much of an effect, though, did it really have? I think it's huge. Um, to, to, know, to know that the community supports you enough for people to go out of their way to, to, to make that gesture, I think is a huge thing. And, and I think when you can kind of get past the, some, of, some of the, you know, the, those other things there, the, the tension uh, that, that tends to exist or at least has for the last several years, you can say, hey, well, look, you know, my community supports me. I want to be more involved in that. I want to go out. I want to stop and talk to people when I see them out, out, uh, you know, at a, at a yard sale or walking down the street. I want to, I want to get out and say hi to them and ask them, you know, how their day is going and, and what is a department we can do for them. And that breeds more of citizens wanting to do nice things for the police, and that breeds the, the police wanting to be more involved in the community, and and it just sucks communities together. I mean, it's just it's great. So I have a question. When whenever September 11th comes around, there's a lot of emotion and sentiment and. People reach out to police departments maybe more than at other times of the year. Is a a once a year shot? I mean, I know it probably means something, but does it have to be more often than that? There was an incident that happened somewhere on the East Coast, maybe it was the Midwest. The tension was very high between police and citizens and all that. So my wife wanted our family, our kids, to know we are behind our police department and baked some cookies, took it down to the police department, and there happened to be a news crew out there. And she got on just and just said, said that very thing. We want our kids to know, our family to know, we're behind these guys who, who protect us. And I think it was probably before that somebody had broken into our house. And first person we're going to call is the police department. Right. And so we appreciate these men and women who put their life, you know, stand bet- be- between us and danger very often. And they don't know when they go up to a car who's inside and how, if you were to give a church or an individual kind of a plan, how could you connect with your police department, sheriff department, whatever law enforcement is right there in their community? What would you give them as a commit, maybe a general formula or plan? Something to kind of help make that connection. So I don't know that there's a, maybe necessarily a right formula, but I'll, but I'll tell you two, two little stories. Um, we have after, uh, after the Dallas shootings, there were, there were five police officers murdered uh, in, in Dallas mm-hmm. And that was kind of after the, the that kickoff event that I think you're talking about, which is which was Ferguson, Missouri, right, just right, outside right. St. Louis. Yep. Um, and, and I'll circle back to that here in a second. But but there were five officers killed in Dallas. And after that happened, we had a man in our community um, who who had been uh, had been in some trouble with law enforcement before in his in his past. His brother's a police officer in California, um, but his his past was a little bit more um, checkered. Checkered. Uh, that's a perfect word. And after he watched the news on that, he said it just it tore him to pieces to to see what was happening because I mean these these attacks, um, Dallas and and then again over in uh, Baton Rouge and and a couple others that kicked off kind of right around that same time uh, were just completely unsolicited. I mean they were all out ambush attacks on on the police and um so so this man said look I've got to do something I can't sit back. Uh, I, I've got to do something, and he started once a month coming down to our sheriff's office, and he would bring. Uh, when it first started out, it was cookies, so he would bring uh, a couple of trays of cookies once a month, and we called him. We call him the Cookie Man, um, and so every, every every month Gary comes in. You gotta love the Cookie Man. You gotta love the Cookie <laughs> Man. That's right. Uh, so once a month Gary would come in and and would bring a couple of trays of cookies, and and uh, he was he was in there one day bringing some cookies, and uh, I think one of the kind of the newer deputies walked in and. And didn't know who he was, and he said, "Hey, would you like a cookie?" And the guy said, said "Hey, I, I, don't, I don't eat that stuff," and which is fine. I mean, a lot of people in law enforcement don't, and there's nothing wrong with that. And Gary said, a, "A cookie man said a light bulb went off his head, and he said, you know, I'm bringing cookies down here, but some of these guys don't, you know, they they stay away from a lot of that. Maybe I need to adjust what I bring a little bit. So once a month now, he'll bring like a small plate of cookies and a bowl of fruit, and I mean, and it goes it goes quick." Uh, our, our our deputies, our jail staff, our office staff love him, and and it's just a really neat thing, and it's a way that he can kind of connect with us. And so we always, uh, the the girls up front have him timed pretty close. They're like, all right, it's been a month. Where's Cookie Man? You know, <laughs> when's he coming? Um, and so there there's a, I don't know that you have to do anything real regular like that, you know. But if you get, um, 
you know, I mean, if you had 12 families in a church and, and once a month one of them wanted to take, you know, a bucket of chicken or something down or, you know, so, something like that would be a would be a very a very outward way to, to, to show so support. So basically you're saying law enforcement really likes food. Donuts specifically. <laughs> hey, I, I wasn't going to say it first, but, you know, <laughs> the stereotype lives on. So, so, so circling back to Ferguson, kind of kind of bring, bring it full circle, there was a uh, – that was when you really saw a, a huge divide specifically between the black and the white communities. And um, it was, of course, it was fueled by just a ton of misinformation um, and, and, you know, uh, just a whole lot of things that were just absolutely horrible for, the, for our entire nation. Um, but we had, we had a man, out, the, the city I was working for at the time, we had a, a, a man there that was standing on one of the street corners one day. And he was holding a big sign and... Um, they had a couple officers, um, you know, drove past and they, they couldn't read the sign or something like that. And they said, Hey, there's a guy standing out there on the corner. Not really sure what he's doing, but, uh, somebody probably needs to go by and just check him and make sure he's okay. You know? And I said, Hey, I, I'll go. I don't mind. And he was a black man. And so, so pull, kind of pulled up in the parking lot there. I mean, he's not doing anything illegal or anything like that. Just kind of stopped to say basically hi to him to see, see what he was doing and, and just chat with him for a couple minutes. And, so, so I pull up in the parking lot over there, and I kind of just walk out, and I say, hey, how are you today, uh, sir, you know? And he turns around, his sign says, free hugs. And I said, hey, tell me what you're doing out here today. And he said, look, he said, I have, I've been anti-police for a long time. And he said, you know, this was kind of just really almost an, ex- an experiment. He said, after, after everything that happened in Ferguson and Dallas and, and Baton Rouge and, and, and all these other places, he said, the hate has to stop somewhere. And so he said, I'm just out here. He said, I'm just seeing what happens. And I said, I'll take a hug. I'm cool with that, man. I, this, this is great. I, mean, I love that you're doing it. Of course, he, start, he started crying. And uh, we, we'll, we'll skip whether I did. You know, I mean, it's fine. Um, <laughs> that would be a yes. <laughs> but but it, it was just, it was phenomenal. Of course, little did I know, and it wasn't planned this way, but little did I know, it's kind of the same thing as you. There, there happened to be a news reporter standing behind me, just kind of got there about the same time I did or right after. And, and I turned around, and she said, hey, hang on a second. And we, I mean, we had our arms around each other anyway, and so she said, hang on. She snapped a picture, and uh, so he's holding this big sign that says, free hugs. And and look, I mean, if we, if we can get back to where our communities are, are, are caring for each other, are loving each other, I mean, a lot of this hate... The hate was born out of out of a lot of nothing. Fear and confusion. That's exactly right. I want to ask you one thing here. We're going to have to wrap it up. But from a law enforcement, you know, people, people uh, have in some ways become afraid of law enforcement. Um, some of that's justified. If you're doing wrong, that's a good thing. You should be. Absolutely. Fearful. Uh, but some people, because of disinformation, because of confusion, uh, because of uncertainty, uh, you know, they're just afraid. But my question is, and we all know that, and it's unfortunate, and you know, we've been talking about that, but what about the other side of the fence? As a law enforcement officer, I mean, you've got a bulletproof vest on, uh, you've got, you know, batons, guns, you know, tasers. But are you guys afraid, especially now with all this going on in this division? I mean, is the law enforcement officers ever afraid to go out into the community? Into the community, I, I, w- I would say no. I mean, that, that's that's our job. That's what we get paid to do. There are – we are people, though. And so, I mean, I think there are situations – I certainly know that there are situations I've, I've been in where I've had guns pointed at me or, you know, or, or – People square off with me, and to say that you know, we we put on a badge, we put on a vest, we put on a gun, and then we're never afraid anymore. Um, you know, we're we're still people underneath all of that, and so we we can be afraid, we can we can be scared in those situations. Um, the the difference is we don't have the ability to to turn away, to to run away, we, regardless of how we personally feel. We we are the the face of of the consequence, if you want to call it that. Um, and so we, we don't get we don't get that choice anymore. We have to stand there, regardless of how we feel personally, and, and say, "This is my job. This is where I stand," uh, and, and kind of stare stare evil in the face sometimes, and say, "I'm here. Let's go." Um, you know, and 
uh, what, what was the old saying? Fear or courage isn't a lack of fear. It is going forward even when you're afraid. And and mm. so so I mean we're we're people and 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 in a time where uh, you know felonious police deaths or, or you know people who actually go out of their way to kill police um, has has been much higher in the last few years. I think it's safe to say that that every time a police officer gets ready to go to work. Uh, that there is some apprehension about what if I don't come home today? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you can't, you hug your kids a little tighter, you kiss your wife a little tighter, or, or your husband, you know. Or, and when you say goodbye for the day, you are you're saying goodbye for the day, but some part of you knows that you could be saying goodbye forever. Does that wear on your family? I, I think it does, um, and I think it takes I think it takes a special a special family to to be a, a part of that life, um, and it's it's obviously something that not not every spouse or every family can can handle, and and that's not that's not to discredit them. This is a hard life, um, and and it is very trying. It's long hours. It's crazy schedules. It's a lot of uncertainty, and. Um, it, it really it just it takes special people to do this job, and uh, there's of course there's there's bad people in every profession. Uh, law enforcement's no different than that, but th- this profession is largely made up of wonderful, wonderful people, and um, it, it's uh, I'm very privileged to work alongside a, a lot of people, even that I'd call heroes. Yeah, well, I think it's a little, you know, a bad day for me is you know someone gets mad at me, yells at me, you know, I kind of make a mistake, tick somebody off. You know, a bad day for you. <laughs> you know, somebody yells at you, gets angry, pulls a gun, and, and right. you know, comes after you. Right. So there is a <laughs> it's not quite a <laughs> bad day's different. Last question here. Got someone that's listening. And maybe they're on, kind of on the fence like you were when it comes to getting involved in politics. They've never really been there. Like, ah, you, know, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Maybe someone's calling them. Maybe the Lord's tugging at their heart. What would you say to that person what advice or counsel could you give to that individual? We need more godly people in government. We need Christians in government. Um, more than anything, we need to submit to God's will. We, we need to do what God wants us to do, regardless of what that is. Um, but, but we need good godly people in government to, to, to help ensure that, that the laws that we create, the policies that we push, the, the angles that we take on things are... Are, are founded on biblical principles, principles, just like our country was founded on biblical principles. Um, you know, and, and as you walk around D.C., I mean, if, if you can't see that with your eyes, you're not looking, or you're blind. You know, one of the, one of the two. So um, I, I would say, look, I mean, if, if, if somebody's on the fence about it, they need to be involved in politics. Um, they, they, need to, they need to know who their candidates are. They need to know what the issues are. They, they need to know how they're voting, uh, who their legislators are, who, who they're voting for, and, 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 and how their legislators are voting. And if they're being pushed to run um, and they believe that it's God will, God's will for them to run, they need to. We need good Christian people in government. Well, it might be that there's not a good person on the ballot because somebody is not obeying God's will and actually running. Thank you, Chris, for joining us. It was a, a great conversation. We, I learned a lot. I learned <laughs> that I need to get to know my sheriff. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but that was, that was great. Thank you. We Thank hope you. you've enjoyed this History Makers edition of the podcast. Be sure to listen each week and find hope from history. Learn more on our website, awakeamericaonline.org. Subscribe, share, consider partnering with us 